can find Isaiah chapter 7, and then also 2 Kings chapter 18. Sorry, 2 Kings 16, not 18. 2 Kings 16. All right, let's pray and get rolling. God, thank you and praise you for the day. May your, may your name be honored and glorified. You are all we need, Lord. In you we find our rest, our salvation, our hope, our strong tower, our refuge, uh, our joy, our peace, and on and on and on. And we thank you, Father. You're a good and gracious God. We thank you for your love for us. We deserved your wrath, and yet mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you, Lord, for extending the arm of grace to even us. Father, bless this time in your word. Guide and direct it. Help me to rightly divide it. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We saw in chapter 6 last week the commissioning of Isaiah, probably the probably one of the most famous chapters of Isaiah. We, ha- we have verses here and there that uh, everybody knows. In fact, we'll bump up into one today that one is very, very familiar. Uh, but uh, as far as a whole chapter, I don't know that there's, maybe Isaiah 40 would, would contend with Isaiah 6, but the commissioning of Isaiah where he, he sees the great throne of God and God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah is quick to say, here am I, send me. And so now we see this commissioning unfolding in the rest of the book for uh, about 32 more chapters. It's going to be pretty strong, pretty um, harsh as far as God's uh, leveling his judgment against the people of Israel. But then it takes a turn in the last 27 chapters. It's, uh, there's, uh, grace is evident, and the, the idea of that a remnant will be saved and that's always present throughout the book. We'll even see that tonight. But this is God executing his judgment against the people of Israel because, as we read in the early chapters, because while they praised him with their lips, their hearts were far from them. It's kind of like a Christian in the Bible belt. You know, it's like I, I'm a Christian because I was born in Texas, you know. Well, no, that's not the case. You know, just <laughs> well, Doug, okay, but <laughs> but it's not because you're from Texas that you're a Christian. It's not that you're from Kentucky that you're a Christian. It's you know because that's the Bible Belt. It's 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 not heritage. It's a relationship, and so uh, that was the issue that God had with the nation of Israel, as is they had made it a heritage rather than a relationship. So picking it up in verse one of chapter seven. We're going to set a new scene from, from where we have been. It says in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods and are, are moved with the wind. And so what we're getting in verse 1 and verse 2 is the end from the beginning. We, we find out what happens. We get, the, we get the end of the story there in verse 1. What's going to happen is um, Rezin, the, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, who is king of Israel, are going to mount a siege against Judah and against Jerusalem and uh, But what's going to happen, as it says there at the end of verse 1, is they will not prevail against it. Now the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 unfold all of this, but we know the end from the beginning. If you were just reading the cliff notes, verse 1 is the cliff notes. But now we get to see it unfold. And as they hear the news of this happening, like it says there in verse 2, that you know the house of David was told, that is Judah to the south, you know, Syrian forces are deployed against Ephraim, or deployed in Ephraim. Ephraim was another name for Israel, the land to the north. His heart, the king's heart, and the heart of the people were moved as trees of the woods are moved by the wind. In other words, they were shaking. They were afraid. They were devastated by this news, and rightfully so. This was a massive army coming against them. Uh, If they were looking at it purely on the human perspective, they were overwhelmed and overcome, and things were not looking good. So understandably, they were afraid. So I think what we need to do in order to kind of flesh this out is we need to see the historical perspective of this. This is the prophetic perspective of it, but let's look at the account in 2 Kings. You can also read it in 
2 Chronicles 28. But uh, let's look at it in Kings. So flip over to 2 Kings chapter 16, and we'll just read through the account of Ahaz, the king of Jotham. Notice it said, Jotham, or Ahaz was this, um, was uh, Uzziah's grandson. Um, so the commissioning in chapter 6 happens in the year Uzziah dies. So chapter 7, not necessarily chronologically in order, and, and the prophetic books don't necessarily follow a, a chronology, which to our mindset that just doesn't make sense, but they had their reasons. And so, so let's get the history now. Picking it up, 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, that's the king to the north, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. Now, just think about that for a minute. Do you know any responsible 20-year-olds? Responsible enough to have a nation, to have autonomous power. You know, to have, you know power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so, certainly so with Ahaz. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. So Ahaz, bad king. <laughs> In fact, he was one of the worst. It says in verse 3, He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and all of the kings of the Israel, all the kings to the north were bad. Indeed, listen to this, He made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. So Ahaz, wanting to appease false gods, offered his infant son on the altar of Molech. Molech was a bronze statue that they would heat, the, uh, the arms were placed like this, and they would heat the arms to red hot, and then they would take their infant children and sacrifice them on the arms, frying them to death in hopes that Molech would grant them favor um, and prosperity. Ahaz, supposedly the king of Judah, the one who's supposed to be leading the nation toward God, did this with his son. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Worship was supposed to happen in the temple to God. And this is indicating he's, he's worshiping false gods. Verse 5, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. So that's what Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 tell us, they're telling us this story before it happened, by the way. And, I, and when Israel, or when, when Isaiah is telling it, it's prophetic. It has not happened yet. So, verse 6 At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwelt there to, the day, to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the land, from the hand of the king of Syria, and come from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took silver and gold that was found where? In the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up to, against Damascus and took it carried its ca uh, people captive to Kerr and killed Rezin. Now, here's another story about Ahaz. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, uh, king of Assyria, and saw, or Pileser, I'm not sure how to say it, probably Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern, according to all its workmanship. Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offerings and his grain offering, and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar, the false altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord from the house of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great new altar burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice, and his grain offering, 
with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering, their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus Uriah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. It doesn't end there. There's more. Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. He took down the sea from the bonds oxen that were under it and put uh, put it on pavement stones, pavement of stones. He also removed the Sabbath pavilion which they had built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on the account of the kings of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. All that, hopefully you get the picture, Ahaz was not a cool dude, especially as far as representing God well. Many, many, many things that he did wrong. He offers his son to his false god. He's worshiping and not in the proper location. He then sees the altar of a false god in Damascus and says, I like that altar. That's sharp. Build me one of them. He moves the furniture of the temple to put the altar in, and he then says, I'm going to make sacrifices on the altar that should be used by the priest to make sacrifices. The king is now offering his own sacrifices. That was a no-no. And, and so you know, the priest is now offering the sacrifices to God on a false or a faulty altar. Um, and not only that, then you look at the, poli- or the, the military scheme of what he did as as Syria and Israel came against um, King Ahaz, he should have turned to God, but he turned to Assyria. <laughs> he, he, he hires Tiglath-Pileser to be his bouncer, to be his heavy, and to um, so he pays Assyria with money from the temple of God. He buys him off to come against Syria. So that's the situation with Ahaz. About the only thing good he did is that last sentence, then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. The only thing good out of Ahaz's name is his son. (laughs) Hezekiah was a very good king for the most part. So Ahaz, if you hear his name, think, boo, (laughs) okay? Ahaz was a wicked king leading God's people in the wrong direction. But what's amazing about the love of God, even here in the midst of the Old Testament, is there's a chance for him to return and do the right thing. There's a chance for him to repent. He had done all this stuff, but even even God says, I'd love to see Ahaz in the right. And he gives Ahaz an opportunity to make the right choices, to get it right. So going back now to Isaiah chapter 7, it says in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now, now, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of resident Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria... Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it, and let, let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. So God now wants to get a message to Ahaz, the king of Judah. He, he, we saw back in verse 2, the king and all the people were afraid. They trembled as the, the, the trees tremble in the wind. And God is speaking to him through Isaiah, a special message up at the pool, the aqueduct, this, this very tranquil and peaceful place. Don't be afraid. That's the message. Don't worry about this. God's saying, if you trust in me, I'll take care of it. Use my perspective and gain peace. Notice, notice how um, God talks about these, these kings that are coming against him. He, he calls them smoking, uh, two stubs of smoking firebrands. In other words, they're just a, a bunch of smoke that will be soon be out. They're, it's not even going to amount to a fire. It's not something you need to wo- worry about. God calls them stubs of smoking firebrands like 
It's no big deal. I got this. What Ahaz is seeing, what the people are seeing is this great forest fire, this massive issue, this huge problem. And God said, come, come see it from my perspective. I, if you trust in me, I'll take care of it. It's in the eternal perspective of God that we can gain peace in the midst of our trials. We get overwhelmed and, uh, with, the, with, with the situation and, the, and it mounts up to our necks and we feel the, the strain and the stress of a situation that we can't often see beyond, beyond. The trial becomes so difficult. And God's like, if you just gain my perspective, you'll find peace in the midst of the trial. This too shall pass, is the saying. It was interesting. I saw this a couple times on Facebook throughout the week, and it's an appropriate Peanuts cartoon. I'd show it to you, but it's really small, and you wouldn't be able to see it. So, But it's Linus and um, Lucy, and they're sitting in a window, and the rain is just pouring. I mean, it's just coming down really hard. And Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if the whole, or what if it floods the whole world? And then Linus says in, in, his, in his way, it'll never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised that he would never, uh, that would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And then Lucy says, you've taken a great load off of my mind. And Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. <laughs> And when we, when we have the proper perspective, when we, when we understand who's in control and how sovereign He is and He doesn't let anything slip, when we can trust in that and gain that perspective, that's when we can, like Lucy, say, you've taken a great deal off my mind. I can be at peace even in the midst of the storm. So Ahaz has got the wrong perspective. He's seeing this great fire, and, and God says, nah, you don't need to worry about it. Look at verse 7. This is God's response. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Drops the mic and walks away. You know, that it's like, boom, that's it. God says it, that settles it. It shall not pass. Is it going to pass? No. Why? Because God said it wasn't going to. He's in control. So it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. It's like money in the bank. It's actually probably more secure than money in the bank. It's the word of God that settles it. Verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. Israel, the nation, the ten tribes to the north, will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. All this is spoken to King Ahaz. It shall not stand, and if you do not believe, surely you will not be established. God says it's not going to happen. Now, it's Ahaz's choice whether or not to believe that. God promises you and I things as well. And it's our choice whether or not we're going to believe it, right? Um, Philippians 4.19, I will supply all your need according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Promise of God, I will supply everything you need, Christ promises. He takes care of his children, or you can see it in Matthew chapter 6. We can believe that and have peace that surpasses understanding. Or we cannot believe that and suffer through the difficulties and not have the peace that God offers. It doesn't mean that there won't be hard times. It doesn't mean that God isn't going to show us the difference between our wants and our needs. God's like, no, that's a want. You know, believe it or not, TV is not a need, you know? But He will supply our need. The choice is ours whether or not we believe it. What God says to Ahaz about the nations that are coming against him will, and in fact does, come to pass. It was Ahaz's choice whether or not to believe, but notice what it says at the end of verse 9 there. If he chose not to believe, the consequence was that he would not be established. In other words, God says, I'm going to bring this to pass, pass whether you believe or not, but 
Your kingdom, Ahaz, your reign will depend on whether or not you believe. The consequence is what happens to you. And that's true with us as well. God makes the promise. The question is whether or not we believe it. So it says in verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spoke, against Ahaz, spoke again to Ahaz, not against, moreover the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Ahaz, he says to Ahaz, God, imagine this conversation. God saying to you, hey, I'm going to give you a promise. It's your choice whether or not to believe it. And then I'm going to give you a sign to uh, make sure the promise is secure. Whatever you want. You want the ground to open up and a volcano to suddenly appear? So be it. You want three comets to come in three different directions across the skies? You name it. Whatever you want, Ahaz, you, you name the sign, you got it. Just to secure and make sure that you... Do you hear the love of God for Ahaz, this awful king? He, he, he's trying to get whatever it takes to get him to trust in God. God wants Ahaz to believe him, to step into that peace. So much so that he, whatever you want, I'll give you a sign. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. <laughs> that sounds nice. Good on you, Ahaz, you know, gold star for you. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Yeah, that, that sounds really good. That's not what Ahaz is doing. <laughs> He's not, this is not a holy moment for Ahaz. Oh, no, 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 I couldn't ask the Lord for a sign. He's not doing that at all. He doesn't need a sign because he's already made arrangements with the king of Assyria. He's already got his plan worked out. I don't need to deal with God because I've already got my plan worked out. He's already placed his trust somewhere else. So he doesn't need this sign. And then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Isaiah saying that? Good question. Who do we live for? May we live for Him. In verse 14, this is a, a, probably one that you've come across before. I'm, su I'm sure you've heard it, especially around Christmas time. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. He doesn't, he doesn't even respect Ahaz's answer. He's like, I'm going to give you a sign. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So he's placing a timeline on this to say before this child knows the difference between good and evil, the age of, of, of understanding, the land that, he, that Ahaz is fearing will be forsaken by both of those kings that are coming against him. If you tie 14, 15, and 16 together, this is a, somewhat of a difficult prophecy to understand. Now, chapter 14, very straightforward. We know this speaks of Jesus because Matthew quotes this in his gospel account, we know that he's speaking of Jesus. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, But while he thought about these things, speaking of Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, your, take you marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and here's our quote, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Christ fulfilling the prophecy given to us in Isaiah, that he is uh, born of a virgin, and the word virgin there in verse 14 is a specific word, and I won't get into the languages, I won't trouble you with that, but just to say there's no question that this word means virgin in the context of relationship. Sometimes the words they could use would mean a virgin meaning a young girl, 
Um, but that's just strictly a young girl. This is somebody who had not had relations yet. Somebody able to conceive but had not had relations yet. And so there, there's just no question that this is in reference to Jesus. But when you couple verse 14 with verses 15 and 16, it gets to be interesting. And as you read the commentators, they say this is a hard section. <laughs> and they're just like, it's all over the place as to what, what possibly this could mean. And we really don't have all the information. When it gets into him talking about curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. I question that to say, okay, and now are we still talking about Jesus? Because Jesus is special in that he's incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He is, and therefore, he doesn't have to learn the difference between good and evil. That's not something learned for God. God already knows that. So, Sometimes when prophecies are given, especially in the Old Testament, there is a fulfillment of those prophecies in a quick way, something that happens very quickly, and then there is a fulfillment of, those pro- of the pro- same prophecy in, in, a, a, in a longer period of time. There, there was a story, possibly one explanation, and like I said, I'm not going to dwell on this forever, but there was a, I heard of one story that was said during the time of Ahaz's reign, as the king of Syria and the king of Israel are coming against him, that there was a young woman who had a child who named her son Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And by the time that that child had come of age where he's eating um, you know, milk and honey, where he's of age that he can tell the difference between right and wrong, by then, which was in just a matter of a few short years, maybe two at the minimum, but no more than four or five, Syria and, and Israel had fallen. Possibility. The, the, so you can chew on this and, and digest it to try to understand. What we want to glean from it tonight is verse 14 specifically in reference to um, Jesus, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, that's the fulfillment of the prophecy given in Genesis chapter 3 when, when God uh, curses the serpent. And um, you know the, um, when he says the seed of the woman, you will, you will have enmity with the seed of the woman. Well, it's not the only time it could possibly be the seed of a woman is if there wasn't a man involved. Every other time conception happens, it's the seed of the man that makes the conception. But it's in Christ when the virgin conceives um, that that it is the seed of the woman. So, interesting stuff. What we can also glean is God is saying Israel and Syria are not going to defeat Jerusalem. Not only that, Ahaz, he's talking to Ahaz, your alliance with Assyria is not going to end well. Right? We see that in the next verse, verse 17. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So everybody, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, they viewed the civil war where Israel broke off from Judah. That was like one of the worst times in the history of the nation. Awful, you know, people, all kinds of people dying, and it was just a brutal time. And what God is saying here in verse 17 is, you thought the civil war was bad. What is coming when Assyria turns against you, even though you've hired him, it's going to be bad. It shall come to pass in verse 18, it shall come to pass in that day when Assyria turns against Judah, that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come, all of them will rest in the desolate valleys, in the clefts of the rocks, and on all thorns, and in all pastures. <laughs> so I just love that picture. God's, God's going to whistle to the flies of Egypt. He's going to shout to the bees of Assyria. And, and the flies of Egypt would be like this massive army coming up from the south. That's the idea. Like the, when the plague, the flies covered the land. It's this massive army coming up from the south in Egypt. He's going to call to the bees of Assyria. They, they were hornets. They were nasty, 
um, tough fighters that came down. Uh, and what the idea is, is God controls the hearts of the kings. We learn that in, in, in chapter 40. God's, God's got control over all the earth, and He controls the hearts of the kings. They're all pawns in His hand. And they're going to be used to level the land of Judah and make it useless, right? On a, a, they're going to be in the desolate valleys and the clefts of the rocks, it says in 19, and on all the thorns and on all the pastures. They're going to they're do the work to make the land useless, giving the land the rest that God required. That was the issue. That's why the, 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 the nation of Israel was taken captive to Babylon, is because they refused to honor the Sabbath. And so the land needed rest for 490 years. And we, we see that that's going to be fulfilled through these events. Verse 20. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor. <laughs> Great imagery. With, uh, with those from beyond the river and the king of Assyria, the hair, or sorry, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. Now that's humiliation. You get your beard removed, it's humiliation, you clean-shaven men. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, I see you. <laughs> but the idea is, no, no joke here, that, that this is a picture of humiliation. He's going to have a hired razor. And, and sometimes they would do that. If you were taken captive um, you know, as a slave, the first thing they would do is they'd shave your beard, they'd shave your head, they'd shave your legs, and, and, and humiliate you. And God's going to do that with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. That's not going to be an easy thing to keep it alive, is what he's saying. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. There will be an abundance of milk because the, the, the animals won't have young to care for and so that's all they will have to eat. The land won't be producing fruit. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines, a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. Where the vineyard used to be, where the orchard used to be, it's now just desolate. Where, uh, it says, with arrows and bows will come there because all the lands will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, there will not, uh, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. God's saying, the devastation that is coming will be devastating. What we need to keep in mind, and we're not hearing it here in chapter 7, is God has promised already that there will be a remnant, that God is going to care for the nation of Israel. He's not going to lose the bloodline. He's not going to lose the kingship of David. The destruction will be devastating, but God has a plan. So now chapter 8, we're going to see the same events that we read in chapter 7 directed, the, the information directed to another people or a different people. In chapter 7, the prophecy given is directed to Ahaz in hopes to woo him back, to, to get him to see he, he has a need for God. Now in chapter 8, God is going to speak to the people, the nation of Judah, the, the, the people of Jerusalem, hoping that they might open their hearts and eyes. It says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shahalashbaz. Imagine that on a football jersey. <laughs> uh, Keith, uh, what's, the, what's the football commentator's name? Uh, from the banks of the Olentangy. What's his name? Uh, he, uh, forget it. All right, never mind. <laughs> I'm just trying to envision him trying to say this name. I practiced it. Maher Shahalashbaz, or bots. That's, that's probably the more technical pronunciation. Who is this guy? Well, actually, it's Isaiah's second son. Isaiah's yet-to-be-born second son. So Isaiah is now prophesying about his own family. But what's interesting to note is it says there in verse 1, write on it with a man's pen. Well, that's kind of a weird sentence other than to say, 
what, what he's saying by that is write, in, write it in such a way that whoever reads it can understand it. Write it in a man's pen. Write it so that it's accessible to everybody. It's understandable to everybody. And he's concerning his son, Maher Shahalashbats. I just like to say it. The word means quick to the prey, quick to the spoil. That's the... Imagine naming your son that. If it were not for the Lord saying, you shall name your son this, they probably wouldn't have pulled this one out of the hat. Yeah, I've narrowed it down to Ben and Mahershal Lasbats. What do you think, honey? <laughs> it says in verse 2, I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record. This is now Isaiah speaking. He's going to take Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberkiah, something like that. But what's interesting is he's taking two witnesses with him. Why? Because we learned throughout the law, by the account of two or three witnesses, a a matter is established. And so he's going to write this down as confirmation, especially considering it's regarding his own family. It says in verse 3, Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shahalasbats. So he goes to his wife, a prophetess, right? He, He... has relation with her, and, and she conceives and bears a son. So Isaiah, the prophet, has a wife who is a prophetess. What were those conversations like? <laughs> Hi, honey, how was your day? Oh, never mind, I already know. <laughs> what would you like for dinner? Well, I, I, yeah, I know that too, <laughs> you know? And, and so, I don't know, it would have been interesting. <laughs> arguments. Ah, 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 you know? <laughs> I'm going to go out. Yeah, but you'll be back. <laughs> Just saying. It would have been interesting. All right, so this dude, Maher Shahalazbat, it says in verse 4, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, so before a young age, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. So he's saying the same thing. God's like, I got this. This is how it's going to go down. These kings that are coming against you, they're going to be wiped out. I'm going to use Assyria to do it. The Lord spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in Rezin and in Remaliah's son, that's the king of Assyria, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He, shall, he will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. So God's like, hey, People of Israel, people of Judah, you can, you can have the peace that I offer you through the pool of Shalom. This beautiful place, this is where, that's where Jesus healed the blind man. It was a, a tranquil, peaceful setting. They said uh, of, that, of that pool and of this, the, the river that, or the stream that fed it, you couldn't even hear the water running. It was this beautiful, peaceful scene. That, that's what God is offering. Or compare that to the turbulence of the mighty Tigris rivers and the Euphrates rivers, this, these massive, churning, powerful rivers, and both those rivers were in Assyria. The choice is yours. And but what's going to happen? They're going to flood the land. It was interesting that we were singing, Your love, O Lord, and uh, the line, um, Your justice flows like the ocean's tide, right? God's going to bring His judgment. God's going to bring His justice. He's going to exact it just like the the ocean's tide. It it will come up over the banks. You can turn to God, have the peaceful waters of Shiloh or the turbulence of Tigris and Euphrates. The choice is yours. Of that king, it says in verse 8, He'll pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. It looks like you're going to drown. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land. Let's get that. Oh, Emmanuel. Whose land? Emmanuel's land. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. It's God's land. 
Remember, throughout all of this, and as we read the judgment coming against the nation of Israel, God is going to continue to uphold the land of Israel because of the promises to David. David's, David was promised that somebody will sit on his throne forever. And that promise needs to be fulfilled in Jesus, the one who is coming, the one spoken of in verse 14. Jesus, a descendant of David. The waters are going to come up to the neck. It's going to look bad. But you're not going to drown. He's going to save a remnant. So now God changes his attention and now he addresses the Assyrians, the ones that are going to rise up over the land. It says in verse 9, Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from afar countries, Assyria. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. If they took the time to write it twice, it was an important message. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand for Emmanuel. For God is with us. Emmanuel. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. We're to fear God. That's the call. Don't be like the people, he's telling Isaiah. Don't, don't fall into these conspiracy theories. We're to fear God, not man. God's perspective is way better. Verse 14, He will be a sanctuary. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, that's, that's what God offers us. He will be a sanctuary but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. If you trust in Him, if you trust and allow Him to work in your life, He welcomes you into His peace. He welcomes you into His sanctuary, the place of safe haven. If not, He becomes the trap and the snare. He becomes who comes against you, the God of the angel armies, the strong arm. Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 21, we've never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, Jesus says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever the stone falls, it will grind him to powder. So yes, the choice is ours. We can fall on the stone, we'll be broken, but we'll be in safe haven. Or it will come against us, and just like the the boulder in Daniel chapter 2 that topples the tower, or the, the idol, so he would come against us. It says in verse 15, Many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. That's a good place to be. When things look bleak, when it looks rough, when it looks like the forest fire is coming, when it looks like you're drowning, I'm going to hide in him. I'm going to hope in him. I'm going to trust in him. I'll wait on the Lord. Good answer, Isaiah. says in 18, Here am I, and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah speaking of himself and of his family and how even them as a family is a testimony against the people of Israel and how far they wandered from God. Consider the meanings of the three that we've learned. Isaiah, um, Cherub Jesub, which is his first son, and Maher Shalhashbaz. Isaiah means this. It means the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah, the salvation of the Lord. Cherub Jeshub means a remnant will return. And then Maher Shalhalashbaz, quick to the prey, quick to the spoil. It's the story of Isaiah. 
There is a salvation that the Lord would have. And in fact, He's going to care for the remnant. He's going to make sure our remnant will return. But what is coming against you will come quickly and will take the spoil. It's going to look bleak for a while, rightfully so, in order to turn the hearts back to God. It says in 19, When they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? What a great question. Why is it that people turn to the 900 psychic hotline? Everybody wants to know the future. I get it. I mean, I, I kind of like to know what's going to happen tomorrow too. I, I'm not going to go visit a medium. I'm not going to whip out you know, my deck of tarot cards. I don't have any, but you know, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going down that road. But it's, so many people are so quick to. And Isaiah is saying, and we would, we would ask the same, shouldn't, shouldn't we seek God? I mean, he's the one in control anyway. He sees the beginning from the end. He, he knows what's going to happen. He's already declared it's not going to come to pass. This, this isn't going to come, it's not going to fully overtake you. It seems crazy to have to ask that, but so many people reject what God has to say and will, will scrap at anything, will, will strive for anything, just any information about tomorrow. I'll spend $4.95 a minute just to, you know, you call them up and they're like, um, I think I see uh, there's a man, he has two legs. Yeah, my uncle, he's got two legs. Yeah, and, and he had um, some kind of meat for dinner. Yeah, he eats meat, he eats steak every night. And yeah, and, and he's going to give you some money. And you're just like, come on, guys. Why eat dog food when there's steak on the table? Right? What? God is offering an intimate relationship with him. He's in control of all situations and he welcomes you into the safe haven. That's the stake God offers. Why, do we, why would we chase after the liver, the, 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 the scraps that the dogs would eat? Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. Love that phrase. To the law and to the testimony. It's almost like a hero's cry. To the Batmobile but different. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. Isaiah is saying, get back to the word. Go back to the word, not to the world. Go back to the word, not to the world. Trust in him. They've got no light in them if they speak not according to the word. They might be filled with intellect. There's a lot of really, really smart people in the world. Way smarter than me. I'm just a simple man. that don't have the light. And because they don't have the light, they do not see. Finishing up the, the chapter. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry and they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. <laughs> we do that at times too, I think. First thing he says is they're going to make it through. They will pass through it. It's going to be hard pressed. It's going to be a hard time. They'll be hungry. And when they get hungry, what do they do? They blame God for their sin. This God, this is your fault that we're in this predicament. I hate you, God, because you did this to us. No, this is the consequence of your sin. This is the result of what you have chosen. Ahaz, I gave you a path back. I gave you an opportunity. The people of Judah, I gave you an opportunity to return to me. Not to stop giving me lip service. Don't blame God when the consequences of our lives are the result of our sin. Last verse. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. As we work our way through these things, it is setting the stage for a bleak and trying time in the nation of Israel for the people of Judah. As we read these, we need to re recall, as what I said in the introduction, the book of Isaiah is about God's holiness. It is that God is holy, and it is our sin that drives us from His holiness. 
And that the most loving thing that God can do is correct us, is chastise us when we want to chase after the sin of this world rather than pursuing His holiness. Our sin drives us from Him. But in the midst of it, and what we see throughout the book, He's reaching out. There's a, a remnant will return. There's an opportunity A has for you to return. He's reaching out to us. Emmanuel came that we might have life in Him. God is with us. Emmanuel. Amen? All right, we'll stop there for this evening. Let's stand, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. An amazing love that our King would die for us. And we're to hollow your name, Lord. We're to consider you worthy of our praise and to live our lives for you, Lord. And as we talked about on Sunday, we get deceived at times and we chase after the shiny things of this world. But by your grace and by your mercy, there is always a path of repentance an opportunity to turn around. It's by your love for us that we can come into the presence of a holy God. For in our sin, we deserve your wrath. And yet, even with Ahaz, this wicked, evil king who did so many things wrong, through Isaiah, you're reaching out to him. Sad that he rejected that, Lord. There are many that are rejecting that in and around our lives today. I pray that we would be the light that Isaiah was to the nation of Judah. That we would shine brightly, not in our own power, for that is weak, but in the power of you. For you are glorious. As we go from this place, guide us and direct us throughout the rest of the week. We pray that your peace would, live, would um, surround our hearts and our lives. For those things that we're anxious for, may we gain your perspective. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.